0: We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man, on his mission to reconnect man with God, restoring the relationship we were all created for. And as I tell you every week, the life of Jesus is documented in four books we find in the Bible, and these four books are known collectively as the Gospels. And today, we're going to begin in chapter 18 of the Gospel of John, as we continue to go through the life of Jesus chronologically in the order that these events happened. And as we pick up our study, it is the night of Jesus' arrest. It is the day before he will die on the cross in our place. And in our last study, we saw Jesus give a small demonstration of his power to those who had come to arrest him. All Jesus did was speak his name, saying, I am the name of God, And the men who had come to arrest him were involuntarily pushed back and knocked to the ground just to make it clear to everybody there that Jesus was the one in charge of everything that was happening. And they were only able to arrest him because he was allowing them to do so. The disciples scattered and now Jesus will be taken to the home of a man named Annas where his trial will begin. And when you dig into the details of Jesus' arrest, trial, and conviction, it doesn't take very long to realize that almost everything was done illegally. They broke the law in the way they did everything. There's no legal basis for any of it. I'll point out some of those illegalities as we make our way through the text, but I'll mention a few now. The binding of a prisoner with ropes or chains or anything like that, which they did to Jesus, before he was condemned, was illegal unless he posed a flight risk, yet Jesus offered no resistance and went with them willingly. It was illegal for judges to participate in the arrest of the accused, and yet there were members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious council of Jesus, who came with the soldiers to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The men who were supposed to function as impartial judges, the Sanhedrin, were the ones who bribed Judas to lead them to Jesus. The men who were supposed to represent the justice of God were the very ones perverting it. And when they arrest Jesus in the garden, Judas just points Jesus out and they tie him up and arrest him without any formal charges. So both the alleged witness, Judas, and the judges, the Sanhedrin, are the ones acting criminally. In the Jewish legal system, you were innocent until proven guilty, and no charges could be filed against you unless there were two eyewitnesses whose testimonies agreed. Once there were two witnesses who came to the court without the accused and made an accusation against them with testimony that agreed, then there would now be a charge. The testimony of those two or more people would actually form the criminal charge. In the case of Jesus, we're gonna see that he was arrested before any witnesses appear and before any testimony is given against him. In other words, Jesus was arrested despite not being charged with anything which was illegal, it was a violation of the Roman law of habeas corpus, which is that you cannot be arrested without being charged for something. And then after the fact, they had to scramble to find false witnesses against Jesus, and even then we'll see that their testimonies don't agree, they don't line up. The gospels also tell us that at least one member of the Sanhedrin was not present during the illegal trial. Joseph of Arimathea. In Luke's gospel, we're told this, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, that means a member of the Sanhedrin, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This is the same Joseph who will famously go on to ask Pontius Pilate for the body of Jesus after he dies on the cross. But what I want you to notice is that Luke tells us that this Joseph was a good and just man who didn't agree with the Sanhedrin's condemnation of Jesus, which most historians agree means he wasn't there when Jesus was put on trial. And under Jewish law, it was illegal to condemn a person to death without the whole Sanhedrin present. If there was no one to defend the accused, a mistrial had to be declared. As just like today, every accused person had to have an advocate. They had to have someone who would speak on their behalf and defend them. We'll find that this trial takes place at two homes, the home of Annas and the home of Caiaphas, the high priest at the time. The problem is that Jewish law expressly forbids an individual from being tried anywhere except in the official court. The Talmud states, quote, after leaving the hall Gazith, that's the court, no sentence of death can be passed upon anyone soever and the Jewish philosopher Mammonides recorded that when it came to Jewish law, quote, a sentence of death can be pronounced only so long as the Sanhedrin holds its sessions in the appointed place. We'll find that all of these proceedings are a sham, a kangaroo court, illegitimate in every sense. So write this down, it's gonna be one of just two fill-ins today. Jesus' arrest, trial, and conviction were all carried out illegally. They were all carried out illegally. And the reason for that is because we know that Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, never violating even a single aspect of it. So he couldn't be judged or couldn't be condemned by it because he fulfilled it perfectly. Let's jump in. We're gonna be in John chapter, what did I say? 18, John chapter 18. 18, beginning in verse 12. It says, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Annas and Caiaphas. You need to know who these two cats are. The position of high priest used to be passed down from father to son through the tribal line of the Levites. That's the way God had said it was to be done. But when the Romans conquered Israel, they began appointing the high priest themselves to ensure that they had someone in that position who would be politically cooperative with them. Annas was the first high priest appointed by Rome. Some say he got too old, some say he wasn't easy enough to work with for the Romans, but whatever the reason, the Romans decided to replace him in 18 AD with a new high priest. Annas still had enough sway and influence that he was able to get his son-in-law, Caiaphas, appointed as his replacement. Now during his tenure as high priest, Annas had become something like... I can only describe as the Jewish godfather. I don't really know how else to put it. An incredibly wealthy man who ran an organized crime network out of the temple in Jerusalem with his five sons. It was a family business. What were they doing? Well, they had a two-pronged scam that they were running at the temple. First, they insisted that you could only make a financial offering at the temple using the official temple currency. And the only place you could get the official temple currency was from one of the officially licensed money-changing booths on the temple mount, who just so happened to exchange money for temple currency at an exorbitant rate, a rate that was a complete ripoff And all of those money changers were owned and controlled by Annas and his family. Secondly, as you may remember, whenever anyone would bring a lamb to sacrifice at the temple, as they were required to every Passover, under Jewish law, that lamb could not have any type of blemish or flaw. And so what they did is they employed official lamb inspectors who would faithfully and diligently find flaw with every single lamb that a person brought into the temple to sacrifice. And this would create a dilemma for many of the people that traveled a great distance to Jerusalem for Passover, and they were put in the predicament now of, well, where am I supposed to find another lamb? There's nowhere I can find one. Well, there is only one place you can find one actually because there happened to be officially licensed lamb selling booths on the temple mount that sold pre-approved pre-screened lambs for Passover sacrifice, and they obviously had to charge a service fee for pre-inspecting them, which would come out to around triple or more the regular price of a lamb. All of those lamb inspectors and all of those lamb sellers were controlled by Annas and his family. They were the mob of Jerusalem and while Caiaphas was officially the high priest, Annas was the godfather pulling the strings behind the curtain. Now think with me, what did Jesus do on the temple mount twice, both toward the beginning and the end of his ministry? He cleared the temple. He went in there, turned over the tables of the money changers, sent money flying everywhere, drove them out with a whip that he had formed, set the animals free while shouting aloud, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Was Jesus good for business or bad for business? He was very, very bad for their business. And now Jesus is being taken first to the home of Annas, the godfather, after which he will be taken to the home of Caiaphas, the son-in-law and current high priest. And yes, there's some history there. Verse 14, now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient, that means advantageous, that one man should die for the people. This is a reference back to something we read in John 11 where Caiaphas had spoken something that he believed he had chosen to speak himself. They were talking about what they were gonna do about this Jesus guy among the Sanhedrin. However, what happened was the Lord was really speaking through, prophesying through Caiaphas even though he wasn't a believer. Caiaphas was using, uh, the Lord was using Caiaphas to say something that he wanted to have said. Caiaphas told the other Jewish religious leaders, it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. See he was speaking politically, he was saying listen, It's good for us if this one guy, Jesus, dies because if he stirs up too much trouble, the Romans are gonna come in, they're gonna crush us politically, they're gonna take away the few freedoms we have, they're gonna remove the Sanhedrin, they're gonna destroy us all. Far better that this one guy, Jesus, dies and that doesn't happen. He had no idea of the second meaning which the Lord was speaking through him, which was spiritual. The Lord was saying through him, it is so much better for us to have Jesus die for all sin on behalf of all men, than to have all men perish and die. Verse 15, and Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. So picture this with me, because here's the most likely explanation. There are two courtyards. There is the main property of Annas' house, his perimeter fence. When you go into his front yard, that is essentially courtyard number one, the outer courtyard. Now, the house itself would have been built in a rectangle or a square shape with a courtyard in the middle of the house, the inner courtyard. So what's really happened here is Peter has followed onto the property of Annas. He's in the front yard, the outer courtyard, trying to hear what's going on in the inner courtyard. And while there's some debate, most scholars are generally in agreement that the unnamed disciple here is John himself, the writer of this gospel. Salted fish from Galilee up north in Israel was considered a delicacy among the upper class in Jerusalem, which is in southern Israel. The father of John, Zebedee, owned a fishing business that we know from the gospels employed multiple people. This was a thriving fishing business. And it's very likely that John made regular trips to Jerusalem to bring and sell this salted fish from Galilee to the upper class in Jerusalem, including the household of Caiaphas. And that would be why John was known to the servants who worked in Caiaphas' house. So they allowed John to follow Jesus into the inner courtyard where Jesus is being interrogated. So at this point, John is watching in the inner courtyard with Jesus as Annas is there questioning Jesus. Peter is in the front yard looking through windows, trying to get a glimpse and listen in on what's going on. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. So in other words, John goes to the door and John says, hey, can you let my friend in too? And so Peter comes in into the inner courtyard as well. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. This is denial number one. I'm not his disciple. Now what's interesting is, did you notice she said, you're not also, you notice that word also, one of this man's disciples, are you? Implying that she knew that John was a disciple of Jesus. And she was asking him, are you a disciple as well? Like John, who just told me to let you in here. And even though John was in there, and she knew John was a disciple, Peter was so overcome with fear in that moment that he says, no, I'm not, I'm not also one of his disciples. No, nothing like that at all. There's his first denial. Verse 18, now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. So as John is watching everything in the inner courtyard, Peter seems to immediately look for a way to blend in and be as inconspicuous as possible. The unnamed disciple, most likely John, is trying to get as close to Jesus as possible. Peter is trying to keep Jesus in view, but stay as far away as possible, denying knowing Jesus and instead blending in by warming himself by the fire of the enemies of Jesus. Verse 19, the high priest Now, it calls Annas here the high priest because that title was sort of like the title of president in America. I don't know if you're aware of this, but even if you're a former president, you get to be addressed as Mr. President for the rest of your life. It's that same sort of idea. Anytime you were high priest, you can be addressed as the high priest for the rest of your life. So even though it says the high priest, it's speaking about Annas, not Caiaphas. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet and in secret I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Here's what's going on underneath all of this. It was illegal in the Jewish legal system for the testimony of any person to result in charges being brought against them. In other words, your own testimony could not incriminate you. Even if you said, I murdered a guy, you couldn't actually be charged unless there were corroborating witnesses. Your own testimony could not incriminate you. You know, like in the States, they have the famous fifth amendment you always see in the movies. I plead the fifth, which means I'm not gonna answer your question because if I answer it, I might incriminate myself. That sort of thing was built into the Jewish legal system. Nobody could be condemned based on their own testimony. So it was actually illegal to question that person because it might cause them to say something incriminating and then witnesses might latch onto that and give false testimony. So you weren't even really allowed to question the person being charged. It had to all be on witness accounts of other people. That's what's going on here. What Jesus is implying to Annas is you know that asking me these questions is illegal. Follow the law, go get some witnesses. I taught in public all the time. You shouldn't have any problem finding witnesses. They're all over the city right now. Verse 22, and when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? The idea is you presume to lecture the high priest about the law? And I don't know about you, but, but just as I read this, I just find that that's so shocking to me, the thought that another human being struck Jesus, like slapped him across the face. And I know they're gonna do much worse to him than that, but this is the, the first moment this sort of stuff really begins to happen. And it's just, it is staggering to me, an incredible mystery that the maker of heaven and earth is standing there in the flesh, and allowing himself to be hit by somebody he created. It's, it's incredible to me. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? In other words, if I've said something evil, declare out loud what it is, name it. But if you can't because I haven't done anything wrong, why, why are you hitting me? Verse 24, then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. The the gist I get from that whole interaction because we're going to find that it's at the home of Caiaphas that the conspiratorial members of the Sanhedrin have gathered, the gist I get from the visit to Annas is that it was literally just a power play from Annas, that Annas wanted Jesus to stand in front of him and say, well, the tables have turned now, haven't they, Jesus? They've turned on you now. You're not turning over my tables anymore because there's nothing going on in the home of Annas that's gonna be added towards the charges of Jesus in any way, it's just a power play, it's just my personal speculation. At this point, we're gonna flip back in our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, we're gonna go to chapter 14. Chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark and we're gonna jump in at verse 55 in just a second. The Gospels tell us that after being taken to the home of Annas, Jesus was taken still at night still under the cover of darkness, to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where all the other priests and scribes and elders, all the other members of the Sanhedrin had been assembled for an illegal trial of Jesus. For you see, under the Talmud, the Jewish laws that were compiled by these very men who were gathered in Caiaphas's house, under those laws, the Talmud, trials could not take place in the time between the evening and the morning sacrifices. Trials could not take place at night. Additionally, the Jewish Mishnah, which is the first part of the Talmud, states, quote, let a capital offense be tried during the day, but suspend at night. The reason was that if a death penalty was in play, those judging needed to be in a state of utmost mental clarity, which could never happen at night. You didn't wanna have men weighing the death penalty after a 14-hour day when they were tired was the idea behind that. Verse 55, now the chief priests and all the council, underline the word, sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death but, and then underline, found none. Again, this is illegal. The judges of the court are not supposed to go out and look for charges they could file against someone. That would be called entrapment in our modern legal system. At least two witnesses are supposed to come to the court of their own initiative with testimony that agrees and their testimony results in charges being filed. Here, however, they arrest Jesus, bind him, and then frantically begin looking for witnesses against him after the fact. And why could they not find any true testimony against Jesus? Because he had never sinned. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. It couldn't be any charges because he'd never sinned. Verse 56, for many bore, underline, false witness against him, but, and then underline, their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But, underline, not even then did their testimony agree. We see even more illegalities here. Firstly, they're lying because they say that Jesus said, I will destroy this temple made with hands. According to John 2.19, what Jesus had actually said was, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. In other words, speaking of himself and his body, Jesus had said, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. If you kill me, I'll rise again in three days. Jesus didn't threaten to destroy the temple. He claimed that he was the true temple and would rise again if they destroyed him. Secondly, as we mentioned at the beginning of the study and over and over, Jewish law required two witnesses to establish anything as being truthful, with the caveat that those two witnesses share testimonies that agree with each other. In Deuteronomy 19, it's on your outline, God's law says, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And verse 59 tells us that of all the false witnesses brought against Jesus, quote, not even then did their testimony agree. So they're false witnesses, they're lying about what Jesus said, and they can't even agree on the lies that they're telling. Verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he, Jesus, kept silent and answered nothing. See, Jesus wasn't obligated to defend himself because their testimonies didn't agree. Therefore, no legal charges could be laid against him. But he's also doing what Isaiah the prophet had prophesied in that incredible chapter 53 of the book that bears his name. I put this on your outline. Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before the moment Jesus stood in the home of Caiaphas. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, underline this in your Bibles, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Notice that Caiaphas' question has nothing to do with the charge that Jesus is supposedly being indicted on. They're pretending that the reason Jesus is there is because he's threatened to destroy the temple. But now Caiaphas is asking him a completely unrelated question. He's asking him, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Verse 62, Jesus said, underline this, I am. Jesus declares himself to be God in many ways throughout the gospel, but in case there was any doubt, in case anyone needed clarity, in case anyone would ever say, you know, Jesus never actually made the claim that he was God. It doesn't get much clearer than this. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? I am. And if you were with us last week, it won't surprise you to learn that when Jesus says, I am, he's saying the name of God. Ego, I may, in the Greek, I am the name of God. And then Jesus goes on to say, and you will see the underlying son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So just in case there was any confusion as to what Jesus was claiming when he says he was Messiah, he says, not only am I the Messiah, the son of God, but the day is coming when you'll see me in all my glory sitting at the right hand of my Father. You might want to keep that in mind. Jesus is borrowing that term as well, son of man, which is a messianic title from Daniel seven. 13. And I put Daniel 7, 13, and 14 on your outlines. You might remember it from our study, but you can look at it. And I put that there just to make it clear. Jesus is referencing that, and there's no way to read those verses from Daniel and conclude that it's not talking about God, the Son of God, Jesus specifically. Verse 63, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy, underline the word blasphemy, So if their response to what Jesus has just said is to accuse him of blasphemy, what does that mean? It means that Jesus was making the claim that he was God. He was claiming equality with God. Otherwise, they wouldn't have accused him of blasphemy. No matter how much a person may want to try and not see it, when you look at the question Jesus was asked, when you look at his answer, when you look at his clarification, and when you look at the response of Caiaphas, You cannot come to any other reasonable conclusion than that Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. We're told that Caiaphas tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. However, the Mishnah says, the judges shall weigh the matter in the sincerity of their conscience. In other words, according to the Mishnah, any court case is supposed to be a somber, level-headed affair where everything is weighed and everything is considered. The very opposite of what we see Caiaphas doing as he tears his robe and says, we don't need to talk about it anymore. We don't need more witnesses. This is blasphemy, doing everything he can to stir up a mob mentality of religious zealous fervor among the Sanhedrin. And in the law of God, in Leviticus 21, we read, he who is the high priest among his brethren on whose head the anointing all was poured and who is consecrated to wear the garments shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes. He doesn't care that he's breaking God's law. All he wants to do is get Jesus illegally convicted and sentenced to death as soon as possible. Caiaphas then turns to the rest of the Sanhedrin and he asks them, what do you think? And, and then underline, they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Again, that means they were convicting Jesus of a capital offense. And the only capital offense that could apply in this case would have been blasphemy, which can only be claimed when someone is being charged with claiming equality with God. Despite a total lack of evidence, Despite knowing that every witness that had been brought forward had been bribed by the court, despite knowing that every aspect of this trial was illegal and violated the Jewish law and scriptures, they all condemned him to be deserving of death. The Mishnah indicates that the proper method of voting was for, quote, the judges each in his turn to absolve or condemn. So each judge was supposed to have a turn, you know, so it was supposed to be, Benjamin, what is your verdict? Do you absolve or do you condemn? Uh, Rabbi Goldstein, what's your verdict? Do you absolve or do you condemn? The members of the Sanhedrin would be seated in the form of a semicircle, at the extremity of which a secretary was placed whose business it was to record the votes one by one. That orderly and thoughtful process didn't happen at the trial of Jesus. Verse 65, then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. They spat on Jesus. The greatest insult a Jew could direct toward another person and they blindfolded him and being blindfolded, He would have no idea when a punch was coming. He wouldn't be able to brace for it. He wouldn't know what direction it was gonna come from. And they hit him in the face and they tell him to prophesy. They're saying, if you're the son of God, if you're the Messiah, use your powers and tell us which one of us just punched you in the face. And that scene is is so dark and so disturbing and if you love Jesus, you can't help but be grieved. And perhaps on some level, as it did mine this week, the thought crosses your mind, I wouldn't want to be one of those men who spat on Jesus and punched him in the face and stand before him in eternity to be judged. But As I was thinking about that, I quickly had another thought because the truth is before Jesus saved me, I, I was one of those men. And worse, before Jesus saved me, the Bible says I was lined up with the enemies of God. I was holding up my middle fingers toward the heavens. I was spitting in the face of my creator. I was mocking the God of the universe, claiming ownership of my life despite the fact that I am a created being. I was using every moment of my life to live in defiance of God till Jesus saved me. Before Jesus saved me, I was one of those men. Just as I was one of the men driving the nails into the hands and feet, I was one of the men gambling for the garments of Jesus as he hung on the cross. I was the soldier who pierced his side as he hung there. I was all of that and more because I was an enemy of God. And that's why the love of Jesus for you and for me, is so amazing. In Romans five, read it with me on your outlines. The apostle Paul writes this, for scarcely, so hardly ever, for a righteous man will one die. In other words, people even hesitate to die for somebody else when they're a righteous man. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. While we were still sinners, while we still had his blood on our hands, while the spit was still running out the side of our mouths, while we were still mocking, still cursing him, still ignoring him, Jesus loved and died for us. While we were still there. While we were still enemies of God, he died to put us back in relationship with God. What can you say about the Lord? What can you say about Jesus? There's no one like him. He's so good and that's why we love him so much. And the last thing I'm gonna share today is this. In in Matthew's gospel, there's this verse. It says, Peter followed him. That means followed Jesus at a distance, at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. I'm gonna ask you to make a note of this on your outlines. The most dangerous place you can be as a Christian, is following Jesus at a distance. The most dangerous place you can be as a Christian is following Jesus at a distance. Keeping him in your view, but no longer walking with him, no longer walking beside him. Coming to church now and then when there's nothing more exciting going on, getting in the word when you start feeling bad because it's been so long, not giving yourself over to crazy amounts of sin or anything, just following Jesus at a distance, not having him involved in your daily life, leading your daily life decisions. When you were in school or college or or, or maybe even church, where do you sit when you don't really want to engage? The back row, the back row, right? That's why it's the most popular seat in school and far too many churches. So where do you sit when you wanna stay engaged, when you don't wanna fall asleep? You sit in the front. Following Jesus at a distance is the spiritual equivalent of sitting in the back of the class at school. Yeah, you're in attendance, you're there. You're technically a student, technically a Christian, but you're not engaged. And when it comes to following Jesus, that is so dangerous because that's where you get picked off, in the back. Just like the Amalekites did to the Israelites when the Israelites spent those years wandering in the wilderness after being miraculously freed by God from Egypt. Some of you will recall the story. The Amalekites were a constant thorn in the side of the Israelites great enemies of the Israelites. And when the Lord gave the law to Moses, one of the things he told Moses was to tell the Israelites this. It's on your outline from Deuteronomy 25. The Lord said, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. See, it says when you were tired and weary, when they were walking through the wilderness and people would get tired and weary, they would drift and fall to the back and Amalek would send these raiding parties to pick them off to kill them, to enslave them, to take their belongings. And they would always pick them off from the back because that's where the weak and tired hung out. And the danger in following Jesus from a distance is you get weak and you get tired. And instead of going to Jesus who said, come to me, all you who are weary and you'll find rest for your souls, you begin to fall back And you begin to buy into the lie that Satan says, which is like, you're tired. You just need to rest. Take some time off church to recharge. Sleep in, you don't need to be in the word. You know, you you need sleep more than that. Take some me time. You'll notice the advice the enemy never gives you is to go to Jesus and get refreshed, which is what Jesus tells us to do. So we fall back, we become weak and tired. And before you know it, we're following from a distance. And we have two main parts to our being as believers. We have the spirit, which the Bible tells us once we belong to Jesus, our spirit is made new. It comes from God, it is inhabited by Jesus, it belongs to him, it's good, it's righteous. The problem is the second part of us is this body we're in, which the Bible calls the flesh. And this body is fallen, it is broken, it is sinful. And the tension that we feel every day is the war between the spirit and the flesh because they're antithetical to one another. They are diametrically opposed. They are the complete opposite to one another. And the flesh and the spirit war wanting different things. The flesh wanting to please your sinful desires and the spirit wanting to please God. In the Bible, Amalek is always a picture of the flesh. And the name Amalek means lapping up, the way that a dog would lap up water. And the idea is that when you're straggling in the back, spiritually, when you're following Jesus from a distance, your flesh is tired and weak. Amalek, the flesh, begins to show up in a powerful way, desiring to lap you up, to consume you. The Bible says... We have an enemy who prowls the earth like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Who's straggling in the back? Who's weary? Who's tired? Who's following Jesus from a distance? Who's an easy target right now? That's why the Lord told Israel to deal with Amalek decisively and to never forget, never forget. So how do we do that? Well, rather than following Jesus at a distance, we do what he tells us to. We come to him and find rest for our souls and we follow his instruction to abide in him, to cling to him, to live in close relationship with him and stay in that place of closeness, be refreshed by him, not the lie that we're gonna be made new and refueled and recharged by anything other than Jesus. If you're following Jesus at a distance, you're in a dangerous place. There's no soft way for me to say that. If you're following Jesus at a distance, you're in a dangerous place for Amalek, the flesh, to show up and go after you. And so if you're there, I wanna invite you today to draw close to Jesus, to come and abide in him, to tell him that you're tired, to tell him that you're weary, to allow him to refresh you. And he will, and he can today if you'll take him up on that invitation. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus. Jesus, what a strange and disturbing thing it is to know that you willingly stood in an illegal court of wicked men, allowing them to judge you on the basis of lies and condemn you on falsehoods, that you allowed them to spit on you and to strike you, to blaspheme and curse you, God in the flesh, We know you didn't have to. We know you could have called down legions of angels with one word. We know you could have ended the whole earth and just started again, but instead you loved us while we were your enemies, while we were yet sinners, while we were guilty while we were actively sinning against you. You loved us and died for us. And we're so thankful. Thank you for loving us. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that, and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now, so stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca, and click on The Gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus and we would love you to be a part of it.